So again, we are going to be team teaching tonight. Um, as we approached this text, as we were looking at this text this week, um, we wanted to get as many eyes and ears on it as possible. Um, I am an unmarried single woman. Jeff is a married man. Um, and so we wanted to come at it from as many perspectives as possible. So tonight we are going to be talking about lust. We are going to be talking about sexual desire. We're going to be talking about our sexuality. Um, this morning I talked to my junior hires about this, and junior hires get very, very awkward when you talk about anything revolving around sex. Um, and I told them that they could do a little awkward little squeezy or queasy little dance if they needed to, just to get out the awkwardness. So if you guys need to do that too, I know that you are mature adults and you probably are completely comfortable talking about this subject. But if you need to do a little awkward dance like this, yeah, Jeff can do it. Um, feel free to, to do that to your neighbor right now. Um, so tonight, uh, we are going to be talking about sexuality. Um, and any conversation that talks about sexuality, where we talk about our sexual desires, where we talk about lust, um, when we talk about what God thinks about those things, we have to start out talking about what God thinks about humans, right? Because sexual desire happens in humans. So any conversation that talks about sexual desire has to begin with what does God say about humanity? And we find out very quickly in Scripture what God thinks about humans. In the first chapter um, of the first book of the Bible, in verse 28, the book of Genesis says, um, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we find out in Scripture right off the bat, that God has this really high view of humanity, that he made them in his image. I look a lot like my father. Um, my father, Mike McLaren, is a bald man with a classic mustache who has a striking resemblance to Dr. Phil, if you've ever seen Dr. Phil. He looks just like him. Um, I look just like my dad, obviously. Um, notwithstanding the receding hairline and the excessive facial hair, um, I look just like my dad. We both have this protruding chin um, that I wore a headgear. Did any of you guys have a headgear growing up? I had a headgear growing up that was like this Star Wars looking thing that I had to wear 14 hours a day from like 6 to 16. It was impressive. But anyway, it fixed my chin. But we still kind of have a, this crooked smile. We have green eyes that we share together. I look a lot like my dad. And when I was in junior high, this was amazing because my dad was my hero. He drove this red convertible, and he would take us um, toilet papering other people's houses, which was probably setting a pretty bad example for us. But I thought that he was my hero. Um, and I loved the fact that I looked just like him because that made me special. My father's glory only grew when, when I was from about the age I was like 10 years old to 15. My dad started being in all of these movies. The Firm came to town. Do you guys remember that movie? Uh, A Time to Kill came to town. Um, the People vs. Larry Flint, which is not your family flick. Um, don't go see that. And then two t made-for-TV movies. Um, my dad had these speaking roles in, and one of them he spoke for 20 minutes. Um, and he just got to be this superstar, which out here probably isn't a huge deal because you see movie stars all the time. But in Memphis, Tennessee, that was a huge deal. Um, my dad was a superstar. I think the best moment of my life in junior high um, was my dad is also this charismatic guy. And so he would become friends with these guys that he would film these movies with. And there was one day when Tom Cruise called our house and said, yes, indeed, he did want to play basketball with my dad that Friday afternoon. Um, I thought that was pretty amazing. I thought that my dad was amazing, and I looked just like him. I was the spitting image of my father. We find in the book of Genesis that our Heavenly Father made us in his image, that he made us to reflect him. And that means a lot of things. But one of the things that it means is that we carry around something of God inside of us. That we are built to reflect God. That we are built to be an echo of who God is. To point to who God is. Which means that built into the very nature of who we are as humans is worth and value. 
God made us in his image. As we look at our text tonight, I think that Jesus was holding on to that idea that we are made in God's image when he says this command, do not look lustfully at anyone. Do not, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with him, with her in his heart. Um, when Jesus says that, do not lust, I think he was p- trying to protect the image of Godness in all of us. He was saying, you guys, you've got to honor each other as human beings. You have got to protect the image of God in the other. Because when you treat the other like an object, you are trampling on the image of God in them. Our passage tonight um, talks about the extent to which we should go, even to the point of cutting off our own hand in order to uphold the image of God in others. And so Jesus says, do not lust. And Jeff is going to talk to us about what that means. Tag. Okay. Let's talk about lust. Right, so it's this difficult concept, it's a dirty word, we don't like to talk about it. it, it bothers us, and it makes us a little bit nervous, especially in the church, right? So let's get it straight, let's have some straight talk about this, and, and in order to talk about this, I think we need to start with a very important clarification. So do we have the text? No? Okay, that's okay. Oh, okay, good. So look at it with me, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, that part's easy, right? If you're unmarried, it's hard to have, you know, commit adultery. But it's verse 28 that we need to focus on. And most people that I talk to in my office or, you know, at school, they're deeply concerned about what constitutes a violation of verse 28. Am I really breaking this rule? Right? So how far can, can I go? How far is too far? they ask, and things like this, right? And I want you to know, this is not why Jesus said these words, so that we could debate about what constitutes a violation of the principle. That's not why he said that. We're going to find out why he said that in a minute. But I want to point out, it was really the legal experts of Jesus' day, back in that time, who debated and obsessed over the minute details of how to break a law and how to avoid breaking a law. In fact, some of them did it so much so that they found a way around obedience to the law. And Jesus has very strong words about people who try to avoid obedience to God that way. Relatedly, I think people, including myself, obsess and are fixated with the first half of this verse, verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, we fixate on that half of the verse Because we want to know whether or not we violated the principle. When, in fact, it's the second half of the verse that I think needs to be preached more clearly. If I had a dime, or a dollar, or a fiver, a Benjamin, for every time a brother asked me if it's wrong to appreciate a woman's beauty, or they would say to me, isn't it natural to feel sexual attraction? Isn't that how we were designed if I had money every time somebody said that, I'd have a lot of bills of whatever denomination. But I think that question is a really misguided question. Now, it's not completely misguided, because this is the struggle to understand this passage. It's also the struggle that many, if not all, men and women face. Because we're, we're actually trying to figure out what the Bible says about what we're supposed to feel. We know pretty well what the Bible says we're supposed to do because there are long lists of do-nots. Even non-Christians are acquainted with what, what the Bible says that we're supposed to do and not do. But how do we feel about those things? This is what many people wonder but have never been guided to the right portion of this verse to find out. So I want you to look there with me. Let's look at the second half of the verse. It's very simple. It says already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, most, if not all men, know exactly what this verse means. You know exactly what it means. It requires very little explanation. 
This is about what's going on inside of your heart. Now let me clarify what the word heart means. We think we know, but back in the day, you've probably heard this in church many times, the heart wasn't just what you felt. The heart was the seat of your decision-making. It was the nerve center. It was kind of like the brain. Okay, This is where we decided what we were going to do, what we are going to like. So in other words, when we decide to lust in this passage, it's a decision that we make with our brain, a conscious one. And you see that I'm pointing to my heart. In other words, it's a decision that we make. Now, this word lust, what does it mean? Let's get our nerd on for a second. Okay. The Greek Old Testament. Remember the Ten Commandments? The, one of the commandments is thou shalt not covet. Right? In Hebrew, that's one word, but when they translated it into Greek for all the Greek speakers way back in the day, they used the same word that Jesus uses here in this passage for lust. Okay? So, in other words, to lust is to covet, which means to want. In a particular way, especially in context of the, of the Ten Commandments, generally speaking, when regular folks were using the word, I want something, they would use this word. I desire for it. I long for it. But in the context of the Ten Commandments, it becomes something difficult. It becomes something sinful because we're talking about wanting to possess something that's not yours. This one time here, it means lustfulness, not just regular wanting. So what, what is it that happens to our desires? What makes it change its meaning here? Because it's been changed for the worse by our sinfulness. You see, it's not just about how long we look, or where we look, or what we look at. Instead, it's about what we want. Lustfulness is about desire. It's about what we want. And in our hearts, if we desire to take that which is not ours that is coveting, if we desire to take a person who doesn't belong to us in a way that is otherwise reserved for covenant marriage, it reveals that our very desires are fraught with sinfulness. And we trample on the dignity and worth of other people when we do this. We trample on the image of God that Annie was just talking about, and Jesus has some really tough advice for all of us who struggle this way. And he's going to talk about that. Tag. So, what is Jesus' advice? What does Jesus say to this? We find this in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. As I was reading the scripture this morning to the junior hires, a junior high boy said, What? This is, I think, maybe the first time that he had heard this passage, but he, he was in disbelief that this was in the Bible. What? Is that really what Jesus said? Which I think is probably the way that the hearers um, of Jesus in, in biblical times would have, would have heard this. What? Is, is he really saying that? Is he really saying um, that thing about gouging my eye out? Because um, those, are, those are some pretty dire consequences. I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to lose my right eye. I don't want to have to cut off my right hand. Those are things that I want to hold on to. And yet, if we are honest with ourselves, if we look at ourselves rightly, I think most of us in this room would say that we've struggled with this. Um, and Jesus is saying that I would rather you gouge your eye out than do this. I think if we're honest with ourselves, um, if we did have to gouge our eyes out and cut our hands off, most of us in this room wouldn't have a right eye we would have cut off our right hand. Most of us probably would have gotten a lobotomy because our minds lead us into these places of sin. So is Jesus, really tell, is Jesus telling us to do that? Um, is Jesus telling us to cut out our eyes, to cut off our hands? 
if, if he's not telling us that, what, what is he telling us? I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful if we will look at the text itself. So um, I'm going to nerd out, as Jeff said, again. Um, and we're going to look at, the, at um, some specifics of, of, of these translations. So if you look in verses 29 and 30, um, there's this refrain that happens. It says, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown or to go into hell. That refrain happens twice. Um, and if you look at the text, um, if you look at, a, at different translations, the NIV doesn't capture um, completely what the, what the text is trying to say because it actually uses subjunctives for you grammarians out there. Um, it uses subjunctives. So a better translation might be, for it is better if you would lose. Or, for it would be better if you lost. Thus, Jesus isn't saying, hey guys, if you lust, go cut off your hand. If you lust, go cut out your eyeball. But he's saying, this is a really big deal. I would rather you have no eye for you to gouge out your eye than for you to treat someone like this. He's saying, I would rather you cut off a piece of your body than for you to cut down the image of God in another person. I would rather you destroy a piece of yourself than destroy and trample on the image of God in another person. Jesus is saying with this um, big language that, that this is a big deal. He's saying, I'm, I'm serious about this, and you guys need to listen to this. And so he says, there are things that lead you to these places of sin. If your eye leads you to a place of sin, then you need to cut it out. If your hand leads you to a place of sin, then you need to cut it off. In the same way, we know that we're not, we're not really supposed to cut off our hands and our eyes, but we know those things that lead us to that place of sin. And Jesus is saying, I'm serious about this. So you need to cut those things out of your life. If you know that looking at a woman for too long um, is going to lead you to a place of sin, you need to cut that out. If you know that being at home with a computer alone is going to lead you to a place of sin, you need to cut that out. Um, if you know that watching certain movies are going to lead you to a place of sin, you've got to cut it out. This is important stuff. If those plate things cause us to be in a place where we are lusting, we've got to cut those out of our lives. And Jesus doesn't tell us to do this, this gradual um, cutting away at the ligaments and making sure the bones all are intact and the muscles and the nerve endings are in the right place. Jesus doesn't give us a gradual surgery. He gives us an emergency procedure. He says, cut that out. That is so toxic to who you are. That is so toxic to the body of Christ that you've got to get rid of that and you've got to get rid of it immediately, which may seem merciless, and that may seem, um, that is certainly not gentle, but it is going to save our lives. And it is going to save this life, the, the body of Christ. And we will be a whole person. If we cut those things out, we will be a whole person. Now, as Jeff and I were talking earlier, that seems um, counterintuitive, right? That if I cut off a piece of myself, then I, I will be more whole. If, or, or if I cut out this piece of my life, that I will be more whole, that if I cut out my eyeball, then somehow I would be more whole. That is mysterious, but there is this thing where if I cut those pieces out of my life, then I actually get to hang on to my brothers and sisters in Christ. If I will cut that sin out of my life, then I get to actually hold on to God better. And I get to be this whole person who lives wholly and completely in the love and the grace of God. In the Ten Commandments, um, God tells us to do these things so that it would go well with us, right? He tells the Israelites, do these things so that it will go well for you. It will go well with you. That same thing holds for Jesus' command too. It will go well for you. You will be a whole person if you live like this. If you live without lust in your life. If you treat the other as someone who's made in the image of God. Now, these words of Jesus seem impossible to many, um, especially in the world outside of, of, of our Christian subculture. These words seem absolutely impossible. And why would you even do this? There's, there's, there would seem no reason to live like this. This is a standard that I can't attain to. 
And as I approach this text, it does seem impossible. Um, this is an impossible standard that, seems, that Jesus seems to be calling us to. But it is in this impossible goal that we realize our dependence on the God of grace and love. It is in seeing how far I have to go that I realize, gosh, God, I need you. When I see this, this command of Jesus, I realize I'm defeated. I am lost. You know, I, I had it with the not murdering anybody. Um, I had it with not committing adultery. I had it with not worshiping other gods. But gosh, this knocks me down, right? It knocks us down because we realize I have done that over and over and over again. And it knocks us down. The law, this law, this command knocks us down. But in the seeds of being knocked down, you guys, there is the potential to be picked back up by God's grace and God's forgiveness. Because it is only when we realize how broken that we are that, that we are ever willing to let God rescue us. That we are ever willing to let God give us a hand and be picked back up again. The law shows us you thought you were doing pretty well at achieving that righteousness, um, at achieving that perfection. No. You don't have a chance without me. So you had better hold on to Jesus with everything you have because we need him. Tag. Okay. We need Jesus. And one of the ways that he rescues us from our life of sin is by giving us one another. So what I want to paint for you now is a vision of how a community, the community that God began, in this Sermon on the Mount, he began a community, how that community is supposed to work. And the word for the kind of community that we're supposed to be is a faithful community. Another way of saying it is communal fidelity. And I feel like we've been talking about this. We talked about it all summer long. As we were going through Philippians, we were saying, be of one mind. The mind of Christ Jesus, right? That puts others before ourselves. That creates a community. And instead of trampling on the image of God in this community, we go to great lengths to protect each other. All right? So what is... What is the result of a community that protects each other? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. I think when you walk in the doors, you're supposed to feel safe. You're supposed to feel like this is a place where when somebody looks at me, they look at me in the eye. And they're not sizing me up sexually by looking me up and down. Allow me to quote from that fount of wisdom that we know as Lil Wayne. I need your help on this. Okay, you ready? I think you know this song. I'm I'm only going to sing a little bit of it, but if you know it, join in with me. You had a lot of crooks trying to steal your heart. Never really had luck. Could have never figured out how to love. Out of love. You had a lot of moments that didn't last forever. Now you're in the corner trying to put it together. How to love. How to love. And then he sings this interesting part. He sings, When you was just a youngin', your looks were so precious. But now you're grown up so fly, it's like a blessing, but you can't have a man look at you for five seconds without you being insecure. Okay, that's, that's, what, that's what we're going to sing. Now, we're going to go back down there. Let's go back down. Okay. All right. So check this out. Here's what he's saying. Did you hear what he's saying? I, it it kind of blows my mind. When you were young, you were just, you were precious. But now you've grown up. Man, you are beautiful. But there's a problem here. You can't have a man look at you for five seconds without you feeling insecure. Does that bother anyone else? Do you see what he's saying? That women, our sisters, are supposed to feel comfortable with men looking them up and down? 
Even for five seconds? How is that okay? I mean, it's no wonder that she's never figured out how to love. Where's the safe community? How do you build communal fidelity when we're looking each other up and down? How do you do that? When you walk in these doors, brothers and sisters, it is supposed to feel safe. And we're supposed to go to great lengths to make it safe. So that's number one. In our family, we protect the image of God in one another. It's not just up to women to feel secure. No, it's up to brothers to make sure we protect our sisters. So that's number one, safe community. Number two, a community where we can talk honestly. Okay, now, speaking of honesty, I have a confession to make. I hate being the speaker for sex talks. I tried to make Annie do this by herself. And here's the reason why. It's because it requires me to be honest. I have to talk about my struggles with lust and with marriage. And this is what we do in our small groups, but I, I need to be one of the leaders of that in our large group here. And what I've found over the years is that I'm actually getting better and better at being on sex panels, as we call it in college ministry. I get invited to be on the sex panel, right? Because people want me to come and share the struggles that I have and what it's like to be a college student. And I'm finding that as I get better and better at being honest, you know what that makes me? Less and less shocked and less and less judgmental of others. This is the product of being able to talk in a safe community. Our small group has actually been going through this book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. And um, he says something that at first hearing I think is a little bit controversial. He says, we live in a nation of quitters. And I want to know if you agree with that. He says, employees quit their jobs as soon as the going gets tough. Employers quit on their employees as soon as profits dip a quarter of a percentage point. People routinely quit on their church and join another congregation at the slightest provocation. You see, what I think he's saying here is that we so easily give up on the good of others and protecting the image of God in other people. In fact, there's a, there's a historian uh, and thinker at a California university who says that here in the United States, and he's talking positively about this idea now, here in the United States, when we affiliate with something, we affiliate only with our consent but only if we can revoke that consent later. And he's saying that that's a good thing. I am not convinced. You see, I think that makes us a nation of quitters, actually. And he, he, he's way smarter than me, but I, I disagree with him on this point. But before I just start getting on my soapbox about being a nation of quitters, I think the other side of the coin is equally true, that if we're a nation of quitters, we're just as much a nation of non-starters. You see, we have never started to take seriously the good of others. We're not intentional about that. Neither are we intentional about even trying to get to know people who are different from us so that we can protect the image of God in them. A nation of quitters, a nation of non-starters. So our community fidelity must be one in which we know that we will not quit on each other. Turn to someone in your row, look them in the eye, and tell them, I will not quit on you. I meant that for serious. <laughs> serious. Turn to each other. Say, I will not quit on you. Now, let me be serious for a second. I hope that I didn't just turn you into liars. I, I hope, and, and here's why. Because every time we come up here and take communion... We say, I am committed to you, and I won't quit on you. When Jesus was baptized, he said, I affiliate myself with you without revoking that, ever. I am yours. I will never quit on you. That's what that means. We're mean, we are meant to mean and do what we say. So I even want to invite the warehouse ministry team to think through our practices here in this community for example, intinction, when we come up here to take communion, where we get in line, single file, and we dip the host into the, into the cup. Does that really help us share a communal meal? I'm just asking the question, because I don't think that when we're just sitting in the pew facing forward and, and taking it by ourselves, I don't think that helps us either. 
But I want to put that question out there. What is it that helps us say to each other, I will never quit on you? What will help us say that to each other? Because those are the habits we need to form. Now, let me talk about habits for a second. When I'm on an airplane, which happens every once in a while, there are certain habits that I practice that Annie and I are going to demonstrate where I make very clear that I don't want to talk to you. Here's how it goes. Hi, what's your name? Where'd you, where'd you come from? Where, did, was it a fun trip for you? Did, where are you going? Uh, my name's Jeff. Hi. Oh, hi, Jeff. My name's Annie. I, um, I was just home visiting Memphis, and I went to Graceland, and it was, I, I love Elvis. I, just, I love him. I love him. He's like my favorite. And I went to a concert, and it was really, the Jonas Brothers are also my favorite. I think that they're like the next Elvis Presley. I, I think I'm just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close my eyes. Just, just, oh. Sorry. Okay. And that's how it goes, right? There are habits that we engage in that say to one another, I will not even start on you, much less quit on you. And I think we do that even at church, don't you? I think we even do that here in this room, that there are things that we do because we have habits that says, I don't really want to get to know you tonight. What kind of habits do you want to develop that says, I will never quit on you? What kind of habits do you want to develop, brothers and sisters? It's going to require you to behave a different way and to do it enough times until you begin to believe that this is how it's supposed to be in the family of God. Jesus says we protect the image of God in each other, and so we go to great lengths to say something like the church is the only organization that exists for the good of its non-members. I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. But let me say it again. The church is the only organization that exists for its non-members. It's a valuable way of saying that we exist for everyone who walks in that door. It's our way of protecting those folks who walk in the door. So let's zoom out for a minute. The entire Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' debut event. It is his premiere. This is everyone's chance to decide whether they like this Jesus guy or not. Jesus sits down. Chapter 5, verse 1. People who want to hear him would sit down at his feet. Hence the saying, I want to learn at the feet of the master. The audience, it's a mixed audience. Pharisees, faithful, rich, poor. Their attention is wrapped on this Jesus guy, this miracle worker. They listen carefully. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth, blessed are the poor and instantly minds shut off. But he goes on to describe a community where we don't trample on the image of God and others, but go to great lengths to protect it. And now all of us have to decide whether we like that or not. Tag. Tag. So let's say that we do like that. Let's say that we want to be part of that vision for communal, for communal fidelity. How do we live that out? How do we do that? Um, I am a single woman. Jeff is a single man. Um, So we are going to be talking to our demographics. Um, I'm going to be talking to single people and women. Um, Jeff is going to be talking to married people um, and the men in the room. So first, um, I'm going to be talking to the women in the room. Um, I want to say, as we approach this passage, usually... Um, lust is a man's issue, right? Something that the guys deal with that that women don't deal with. And so we don't often talk about it. Um, But tonight we're going to talk about it because um, I just want to say, and we just have to say that women um, are guilty of lust as well. Um, Women lust too. Women treat men like objects as well. Sometimes we do it differently. Sometimes we do it in the exact same way. But that's what I want to talk about. There are many ways that as women, um, we treat the men in our lives as objects. Um, Sometimes we fantasize or we imagine the life that an individual man or just some random man um, could, could give us. Sometimes we think about and daydream 
about how some man um, that we know might complete us, circa Jerry Maguire, um, or make us whole in some way. We use males' attention, we use guys' attention to make us feel better about ourselves. In all of those ways, we are using men as objects. Um, We are using a man as a placeholder. It doesn't matter who he is, he's a placeholder to make me feel better about myself. We also um, use men in sexual fantasy as well, just the same way that guys do. Um, Women struggle with this as well. And we need to call that out, and we need to talk about it as women. I think another way um, that as women we engage in lust is, is lusting after men, lusting after us. Does that make sense? So we want men to lust after us. This word sexy has become so pervasive in our culture. As I walked into the junior high room this morning, I heard one junior high boy say to another junior high boy that he looked, that what he was wearing was sexy. Um, It's just part of what we say, and it's a value. It's something that we want to attain to, especially as women. Um, And as we do that, um, as we try to make these men think that we are sexy, as we try to almost make them lust after us, I think it's good to ask, why, why do I want to do that? What's behind that? Um, is it control? Do I want to feel like I can control him? Do I want to feel my own power? Either way, we're making him an object. And we're making him do this thing that Jesus said it would be better to gouge his eye out than do that. Do we really want to put our Christian brothers in that place? And do we really want to put ourselves in that place? Now, I think that wanting men to lust after us is a a tricky issue because so often lust dresses up like love and connection, right? It dresses up like it's going to bring us some sort of fulfillment, like, oh, he likes me, he's attracted to me, he wants me. But we find so quickly that that's really just vapor, that it's a mirage, that it, that it falls apart, and that we are left feeling empty as well as our brothers. Um, lust ends up hurting everyone. So I'm looking at this text as a female, um, and I approach this text as a female, but I want now to talk to the men and the women in the room. As Jeff and I were talking um, about this sermon, we wanted to give words to what it feels like to be objectified. And I want to be clear, men and women objectify, and men and women have been objectified. Um, As I have interacted with women over the last 10 years of ministry, and as I have been a woman for the last 31 years, um, I wanted to bring. I wanted to say some words that capture what that feels like to be treated as an object, so that we know what that feels like. And this is not to make us feel um, shameful. This is not to make us feel bad about ourselves, but just to know what is what is that? What does it feel like to be objectified? Words like powerless. Words like shame. Words like, my personhood has been erased in some way. I don't exist. I am an object. Those are heavy words. Those words should bring a cloud over our head. This thing that Jesus was talking about, he was serious about it. It has serious consequences in our lives. And yet, we know that when we struggle with lust, we are not evil. My brothers in this room are not waiting around for the chance that they could lust after the women in this room. The women in this room are not waiting for the chance um, that they can make a man into an object. And so Jeff is going to talk to us about that struggle of lust. It's true. I want sisters to hear... Tag. Tag. Okay. I want sisters to hear that your brothers, many of us, really are fighting valiantly to protect the image of God in you, and we care deeply about you. So 
we still need to talk about this lust thing for men. In, in my ministry experience, which is relatively short, lust has just needed very little explanation. And there's really been no innovation, really, in ways to avoid lustfulness. The old sayings are still true. The old methods are still true. You take yourself out of dangerous situations. You make sure you talk honestly with other people. You work hard. But there are some things that I want to make sure that we do say about ourselves. I want my brothers to know that there is more in the Christian life than your struggle to be sexually pure. There's so much more. This is one of the areas that you really must focus on with all seriousness. But what about your vocation? What about being a faithful worker in the harvest field? What about being the leader that God intended you to be? What about developing character? There are so many things for you to be and to do and to learn that this isn't the end-all, be-all of the Christian life, and sometimes it feels that way. I know. Sometimes it feels that way. The second thing I want my brothers to know is that if you struggle alone, you will lose. If you struggle alone, you will lose. Counseling has been so helpful. Honest talk has been so helpful. And anonymity has never been our friend. You struggle alone, you develop another kind of habit. Another kind of habit that incapacitates you from appreciating the image of God in others. The third thing I want my brothers to know is that there is freedom. And so many days, it, it has been so hard to believe that. But I want my brothers to know that you are to give thanks for every good day. Every good day you give thanks to God who has given that day to you. Now, I'm supposed to talk about marriage too, so let's just roll right into it. You see, just because a man or a woman gets married doesn't mean that they have learned how to not objectify the other gender. Marriage does mean, however that all of a sudden the importance of getting this right has just shot up in value and importance. Not only do we need to avoid adultery, but now we must learn to treat our wives as the image bearers of God that they are. We treat them with honor and respect. Every day, till death do you part, there will be a woman in your house, in your bed, who demands your honor and respect. Your devotion to her is to be complete, and there's something actually very sci-fi about it too, if I may say so. I think it works like a force field. Okay? You with me? Probably not, but whatever. You got husband and wife, and in this relationship, it is protected. The image of God is protected because you demand honor and respect from one another. But as you learn to be married that force field grows to encompass everyone. Why? Because if you don't learn to treat other women with honor and dignity and respect, if your relationships with other women don't change for the better, then your marriage is at stake. Adultery is at stake, right? So you see what happens? Marital fidelity helps you have communal fidelity. If you get your marriage right, that force field will grow and you will learn, because your marriage depends on it, to treat other women right and other men right. And it works the other way around too. Pope John Paul shocked the skeptical world when he wrote that you can actually lust after your own wife. When you treat her like an object, when you don't treat her with dignity and respect, it's certainly true that if you bring habits of objectifying women into a marriage, you will struggle to even treat your wife with dignity and respect. Um, this past week, I took my car to the dealership, and there was a guy there, well, actually, there was a woman there who pulled up at the same time as me, and it turns out she had violated some traffic rule, and a child was in danger because of it. I, I, the only way I knew any of this was because a pickup truck came screeching up with a man screaming at the woman the most vile, degrading, dehumanizing profanities at her for her traffic violation. 
the worst words that I could think of to call a woman. And I have to think to myself, his child, how is his child going to learn to respect the image of God in other people? You see, sin like this is a disease that we pass on. Marriage is supposed to help us treat everyone with respect. What we do in our bedrooms comes out here. And what we do here, we will carry into our marriages as we respect each other. So that's married, folks. And he's going to talk about singles. Tag. So all the single people, put your hands up. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Um, I want to call out that in the biblical world, single people in their 20s and 30s um, who just haven't settled down yet, we were an anomaly. We were not part of the biblical imagination back in the day. Um, there were not very many people who were in their 20s and 30s and who were single or who were dating. Um, that wasn't a world that they were talking about. And so we, we don't find a whole lot of um, direct advice on how to be single in your 20s and 30s, right? Um, we don't find a lot of that in here. And yet, um, Jesus, I think, includes us in this passage. So as we look at this passage, it starts out and Jesus is sitting down and he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And it's like he's saying that to the married people, right? Um, Because you can't commit adultery if you don't have a spouse to commit adultery on. So, but then it's like he widens his, his audience or something. And he says, but all of you guys, none of us are going to lust. Um, you guys don't commit adultery, but then he, it's almost like he widens his audience. And he says, single people as well as married people, we are not going to treat each other as objects. And as he is doing that, he is really living out this ethic of the kingdom of God that is always reaching, always um, extending, and always gathering people together. The kingdom of God always does that, right? You think the kingdom of God is only for Jews? Gentiles too. You think the kingdom of God is only for the righteous? Hey, here's a prostitute. Here's a tax collector. Always reaching and always gathering in. And Jesus seems to do this here. Reaches out and gathers us all under this one ethic. Do not lust against one another. And so how do we do that as single people? Um, I, want to, I want to talk about flirting as single people. Um, because I have found, as being single, um, that, that we often treat each other as objects in this area. There is a way um, that we can flirt with one another, that we can talk to one another, where we treat each other as objects, um, where we flirt with someone in order to just get their attention. I know that I um, struggled with this all the time in high school and college and early seminary, I'm sad to say. Um, and people would tell me, Annie, that's not appropriate. You can't flirt with that guy if you're not attracted to him. And be like, I'm just fun. I'm just a fun person. I'm just, you know, I can't help it if people just like me. Um, that was so wrong. I was so not okay in that. Um, I was treating that man as a placeholder. I think that's a good word. Um, as an object in order to receive attention from him, in order to receive kind of a sense of self from him. And that's not okay. We have to treat each other with respect as single people. Um, We cannot treat each other as objects, um, as single people, because we will destroy our own community. We will eat away at our own community if we treat each other as objects in the body of Christ. So as single people, we have to look at that. We have to look at how we talk to each other and how we talk to the married people in the room as well, how we treat them. Um, we also, as Jeff talked about earlier, have to, talk, have to think about and have to talk about um, our thought processes. What are we thinking about? Who are we thinking about? How are we thinking about them? And not just the passing attraction to someone, but passing attraction and then, ooh, we, br- we bring it down and we look at it and we examine and we possess another person. That's when things get shady. That's when things get difficult. When we need to do whatever it takes to cut that stuff off. And that involves being in community with one another. That involves single people and married people alike, all of us living out that vision of communal fidelity that Jeff was talking about. That means having hard conversations 
and hard conversations that spring um, that are a symptom of a community that is not giving up on one another, a community of trust. Tag. Tag. Let's bring it home. If there's anything you walk away with tonight, I hope it's that the Bible, Jesus himself, offers up to you a vision of communal fidelity. He wants this to be a community that reflects what he's saying. And I think that at its best, this is what we mean when we say community of concern. The warehouse community is supposed to be a group of people who don't quit on protecting each other. But if you're like me, you have grave doubts. You've never seen this work. You've not experienced this for yourself. You doubt that this community, and much less the larger church, is capable of being what Jesus describes here. And I want to tell you that Jesus' solution is one thing. It's to be found in Him. You see, in the kingdom of God, when we are in Christ, not merely affiliated with Him, not merely related to Him, but found there in His Jesus space. Can I call it that? Jesus space? When we are in Christ, the air is different. And by that air, we are transformed. By the Spirit of God, we become transformed as we live in Christ. That's the only way that we'll be able to do stuff like this. So Jesus says, come on in. And Paul says, be reconciled to God. And when we do that, we become what Jesus asked us to be. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And people will have something to say about a church whose divorce rate is lower than the world. A church who's reconciled to each other. A church that practices habits that says we won't quit. I'm not sure what those things are, but I'm on a journey of faith with you guys. We're on a journey of faith with you to figure out what that means. This transition is going to be interesting, but let's figure it out together. And in order to do that, would you pray with us? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because your son Jesus laid out a brilliant program. And we want to be a part of that. Help us to be that. Lord, we know how incredibly difficult it is for men and women to be what you've asked us to be, to live the way you've even designed us to live. It's difficult because of the weight of sinfulness at work in our body. We ask, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your inclusion in Christ. Lord, that you would transform us by the very spirit we breathe. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.